Would you open God's precious holy word to John chapter 7? And we begin in verse 1 with this chapter today. And as we come into this time, we are entering into the last months of the earthly life and ministry of Jesus of Nazareth. And after these things, about seven months have passed since the end of chapter six. And we know that because those events were, thank you, sir. Those events were connected to the Passover. And now these events, this part of the scripture, connected to the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. So seven, about seven months separate those two feasts. John does not give to us the things in his gospel that happened during those seven months. Jesus now is withdrawing from public ministry. As a matter of fact, he spent those seven months primarily teaching his disciples, strengthening them in the truth about the kingdom, beginning to lay the foundation of what the Great Commission would be and the importance of it. It was during this time that he would describe to them how when he would get into Jerusalem, he would be betrayed and he would die on the cross. Also, he was transfigured during these seven months, he, the Mount of Transfiguration. So for the most part, the pinnacle of his ministry, the greatest crowd, would have been the feeding of the multitudes and then those who got in the boats and followed him afterward. That would be, numerically speaking, the pinnacle of his ministry. Christ himself would tell you that how many were there really was meaningless. You remember, we saw twice already in John's gospel that he didn't trust their, their hearts. He didn't trust their, their following him. In perspective, Christ, before he withdrew from public ministry for the most part, in John 6, you will recall, Jesus at last, having done everything that was necessary to prove himself to be the Son of God, at the last, presented himself as the only way for their salvation. You must eat my flesh and drink my blood. You must essentially partake of me, for I am the bread of life. The fathers ate that bread in the wilderness and they died. But he who eats this bread will live forever. It was okay when Jesus was just a miracle worker. Or a, or a 
unique and powerful speaker for more than one time, for more than on one occasion, they said, nobody has ever spoken like this before. But when Christ presents himself as, the in, as God incarnate, the multitudes simply couldn't handle it. It's not so much as how many you have, it's who they are and how they are developing. So during these seven months, now that most of the so-called disciples, the false disciples had forsaken him, they wouldn't follow him anymore. I'm the bread of life, he said. You have to have me in your life as the essential uh, part of living. There is no spiritual life apart from me. When Christ presents himself as the only way for their salvation, this is God talking to them. They walked away from God, most of them. It's, it's not that much different in the world today, nor has it ever been. He came to redeem his own. And he is certainly now at this point headed to the cross. So it was after those things, after these things, those seven months where he primarily gave himself, he invested himself into his disciples, teaching them. These others could have learned it as well, but they couldn't accept him as, as God on earth. They could not accept him as the only way of salvation. They could not accept the truth that I have to be totally at the mercy of a savior they rather chose to believe that they had to at least participate in some way in their salvation. And of course, that's not true. There's nothing we can do. People don't like that. They didn't like it then. They don't like it now. And so to listen to the message of absolute sovereign grace is something that the multitudes had turned away from. They rejected it. So now it's Christ and his disciples. Because you see, and we will see this even more clearly when we come to John 17 and his great, his great high priestly prayer in John 17, just before he's crucified. And God the Son considers all that the Father has given to him in the covenant and considers of what is yet to come when Thomas saw him after his resurrection, before he saw him and he appeared to the others, Thomas said, I won't believe unless I touch his hands and consider his side. Christ appeared to Thomas. He showed him his hands and his side. And Thomas said, my Lord and my God, to which Jesus replied, you're blessed, Thomas, because you have seen and you believe. How much more blessed are those who have never seen and yet will believe. So as Christ enters these final months and he's teaching his disciples what they must grasp and yet will not completely grasp until after the resurrection, he teaches them the truth of the kingdom. 
Matthew 24, Mark 13, the Olivet Discourse. It is yet to come, you see. When they would ask him the question, when will these things be? And Christ describes the end of the age and warns of the tribulation. So there's so much to teach them and he just invests his life into the lives of his disciples. Those seven months have passed. After these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee for he did not desire to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jewish feast, Jewish feast of booths or tabernacles was near. Now this was a big deal. It was one of the feasts that all Jewish men were required to attend. If, if obviously if they were in the vicinity, they were in proximity. When you read all the accounts, it becomes obvious that Christ and his brothers, and I guess his sisters and whatever family they had, he had sisters, the Bible says, but we know he had four brothers. He had uh, James, Joseph, Jude, and Simon, and two of them wrote part of the New Testament, James and Jude. They always went as a family. It becomes evident in the scriptures to the Feast of the Booths or Tabernacles. It was a fun time. It was usually, it was in October of the year. It was during the year. It'd be our time of October. It would be a week of festivity. People would camp out. They would, they would build these temporary things to live in. And they had a big time. It was from Leviticus 23 to remind the people perpetually of how God cared for them in the wilderness, post-Egypt. So they would, of course, read and enjoy the scriptures about their beginnings as a nation. They would fellowship with one another. Man, they'd probably spread out good food and all that. You know how a camp out is. When all your family comes from everywhere, family you've never known. And so these hundreds of thousands would descend upon, or I guess ascend to Jerusalem. Family did it all the time. So now the Jewish feast of booths was near. His brothers said to him, Joseph, or James, Joseph, Simon, Jude, depart from here and go to Judea. Obviously, some of my fonts didn't work. Man, I type that stuff so fast, I have to keep a fire extinguisher handy. And I'll, I'll miss a, a, it'll miss a letter every once in a while. Electronics is not as fast as my fingers. <laughs> Depart from here and go to Judea so that your disciples will see the works that you are doing. Now, there's, there could be a little sarcasm there. Let's, let's, let's keep reading. For no one does anything in secret and seeks himself to be in public. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers were believing in him. In another account, 
they try to cover up for him saying that he's insane. You know, Jesus never sinned. You can only imagine growing up in a household where your, where your oldest brother was always right. In my case, it was the youngest child. But uh, never did anything wrong. Never quietly and obediently and perfectly served as a carpenter, made beautiful things, far above any, the quality of which must have been, I mean, how can something come from the hand of God less than perfect? Poor Mary, after Joseph dies, is needing help, and the first one there is Jesus. Here, mother, I'll do that. Here, mother, let me do that. Now, that's the gospel according to Charles. You can take it or leave it. But, I mean, let's face it. Jesus was perfect. These guys had to grow up in his shadow. And now Jesus has disciples and they acknowledge it. Your disciples. Now, could there be sarcasm? Because everybody would know that after Christ had presented himself as the bread of life, the vast multitude of his followers left him. You need to do these things in public. You don't do those things in secret, wanting to know that you need to be in public. Show yourself to the world. You'll have a big crowd this year. For not even his brothers were believing in him. Now that tells us something else. In Acts chapter 1, they gathered in that room, the 120 under the directive of Christ to wait until they were endowed with power from on high. They didn't, Christ didn't tell them how long to wait. Now you and I know that it was 10 days. It was to the day of Pentecost. But they didn't know that. And so these very, very dedicated, committed believers were there, just a very few of them. And they were waiting for the power that Christ from the Father, that Christ had promised would come from the Father. Okay. Do you know who was there among that 120? James, Joseph, Jude. All, the, all of his brothers were there. So at this point, Christ had earlier said, we studied it. You can't come to me unless the Father draws you to me. Well, the Father hadn't drawn them to Christ yet. They were unbelievers. It was in the purpose of a divine and sovereign God. We have great New Testament teaching. I'll tell you, the little book of Jude, to me, is very powerful. And it's... It's extraordinarily interesting how in the, in the final format of the New Testament as it came to us from the early church, 
Jude was the book, the little tiny book, the book that preceded the Revelation. The Revelation describes to us, for the most part, the consummation of the age, the new heaven, the new earth, the coming of Christ. Just before that, the little book of Jude, how to watch out for apostates, people who could spoil everything and, and be so convincing. That was the, and Christ's brother wrote that little book. Well, at this point, they are unbelievers. Ah, come on and go with us. Let everybody see what you've been doing. There'll be a big crowd there. We always do this every year. Jesus, come on. Don't break it up for us. I mean, this was like their Christmas time, right? For not even his brothers were believing in him. Now here's, you have to take note. John, using, drawing upon eight miracles of Christ in his, in his gospel. is revealing to us the deity of Christ. That God became a man. And John would say in chapter one, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So John is laying out the case, the truth, that Jesus is the Christ of God, the Messiah, God, the Son, God in the flesh. His brothers at this point were not believing in him. But Christ doesn't belong with his brothers like this anymore. They are chiding him Wanting him to join in. Now, you understand, when people came from, from some miles away to go into Jerusalem, they would travel in caravans. They, there would be a lot of people. It would cause a big commotion, a big stir. And the caravan that came from where Christ's family would travel would be at a certain, in a certain route, in a certain way, as they would make their entrance into Jerusalem for the, the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles. Now we're going to see in this passage that the Jews are seeking him to kill him. Let's continue. Therefore Jesus said to them, my time is not yet come. Okay. This is in October. This is the Feast of Tabernacles. The next spring, the next Passover is Christ's time. He will be crucified, but not yet. You see, we're taught 
Absolutely. That the Father has the Son on a divine timeline. My time has not yet come. But your time is always ready. That's the difference between Jesus and his four brothers. His four brothers were not divinely and miraculously conceived. None of these half-brothers, none of these brothers of his, in any whit could claim deity. Nor could they take his place on the cross. Nor did the father make any kind of deal with any of those four, those four others. It was Christ and Christ alone who had come to die for his elect. Christ says, look, your time is always ready. <laughs> you have one divine appointment, and that is to die. It's appointed unto man once to die. Your time is always ready. You can go to any of these feasts that you want to. But it is not your time right now, nor is it mine. Do whatever you want to do. Your time is always ready. But you are not me. It also teaches us that there is nothing divine about Mary. Except for the fact that God chose her to be the virgin, to bring the Christ into the world. But she has, she has, no, she has no deity. She has no divinity about herself. And so there would be no divinity with these others, these, these brothers or even sisters of Jesus. Your time is always ready. You're not on a divine timeline like I am. The world is not able to hate you. They're going to walk right into Jerusalem and nobody's going to try to put them on a cross. Nobody's going to seek out those four guys and kill them. They're looking for Jesus. The world is not able to hate you. However, it hates me. Now, when we teach and preach Christ, when we believe the Bible is absolutely true, when we see and know that Christ is the only way to be saved, when we understand and preach and declare that we are, there is nothing good within us, nothing there is nothing within ourselves deserving to be saved. When we preach and teach what the Bible says to us, that mercy and grace come only by Christ, and that absolute truth is embodied in the person of Christ, and that there is no other truth apart from Christ and his blessed word, the, wor the world doesn't hate us, the world hates Christ in us. The world would try to trick us or talk us or buy us out to hush all of that, to compromise. 
It is Christ whom the world hates. We come under the hatred of the world because Christ is in us. If Christ was not in us, the world wouldn't hate us. But it is Christ in us. And the world, listen to me, the world doesn't go after any other so-called religion like in the course of time they have gone after the people of God in the Old Testament and the church of the Lord Jesus Christ in the New Testament. These others don't receive the same kind of hatred. The world tries to compromise with them. There is a religion today that declares that if you don't become a believer and convert to their religion, they will cut your head off. And so the world appeases them, compromises with them. The church, of course, has no kind of proclamation like that. We do warn people of hell. And so through the years, through the decades, through the centuries, through the millennia, they have killed the prophets and the apostles and the teachers and those devoted. Christ says, the world's not able to hate you, but it hates me. Why? Because I bear witness concerning it that its works are evil. Jesus will say to the leaders of this religion, you are of your father, the devil. There is no, listen, there is no goodness, no righteousness apart from Christ. None. Man's standard of righteousness and goodness and definition of goodness, those are always changing. You can stand up and stand on the side of a goodness that was defined 25, 30, 50 years ago. And today, that's an evil thing for you to do. And if you did, if you stood on things like people stand on today, declaring themselves to be good or whatever, 50 years ago, it would have been evil. That's why there's only one absolute standard of truth, and it is the Word of God. I bear witness to the world, and it hates me because I have declared that the works of the world are evil. Is there any evil? In our constitutional republic today? Yeah. Is there any evil in the governments of Europe, Russia, China, South America, I don't know, wherever? Is there evil in this? What about the religious systems of the world? Do good. Follow this list of things to do. 
understand that there's more than one way to heaven. Is religion evil? Religion? Yes. It's evil. It's the world system. It's evil. Everything about the world is evil. And that's what Christ has come to redeem us from. And that's what Christ at last will destroy with fire. And at last replace with his perfect righteousness. So the world hates him. The Jews hate him because he's telling them your writings of, of mission, the, 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 the way you look at the Torah and the, the, the horrible things that you've placed on people's backs, the burdens that have nothing to do with the word of God or the law of Moses. You have, you have so confused the people and you've made it something terrible. You've made a monster out of Judaism and they hated him. Jesus called them names. They're serpents. They're decayed like dead men's bones. And their father is the devil. Its works are evil. It is so difficult. To develop as a disciple of Christ and the more you learn and the more you see Christ and the more you become acquainted, acquainted with God himself through reading his word how it makes us feel like such strangers in the world where we are because more and more, as we develop in our faith, more and more, we recognize the evil of the world. Our life, our only life is in Christ. Our only hope is in Christ. Evil men will wax worse and worse, the Bible says. And we're in that era, we're in that time. The world won't hate you, it hates me. Because I bear witness, I'm the only Savior, I'm the bread of life, and I bear witness that there is no other way, and that its works are evil, therefore they must kill him. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast. Now, in the, in the Greek text, he's saying, I'm not presently at this moment going up to the feast. For my time has not yet been fulfilled. Christ knew that the Jews were watching for his family to come in on a caravan. Christ knew that they had already, for the most part, turned the hearts of Jews against him. Christ knew that they would descend upon him and put him to death before his time. And this was not that time. Christ, no one forces Christ to do anything. Christ is in control of what he as the son of God will do according to the will of the father. And nothing is going to stop that. So my time 
has not yet been fulfilled. I'm telling you, I was on his heart when he said those things. Those of us who are in Christ, they were in his bosom, bound up in his love. He had to be the Passover lamb. He had to die for us as our lamb. And that would happen according to the timetable of God at the next Passover, as it turns out. And this is as important, this is as important to me as it was to the disciples in that day. Christ will fulfill what he must do for me. That's important to me. This is the will of the Father in Christ for me. Now, having said these things to them, he remained in Galilee, but when his brothers had not gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not openly, but in secret. Now, before we were in John, we were in Ephesians. You remember that? What were we in before Ephesians? Galatians. What were we in before Galatians? Luke. Lord, lay not this charge to them. <laughs> the mind is weak and feeble, and we cannot remember. What happened in Luke 9? Christ went through Samaria where no Jew would go that he might make his way secretly to Jerusalem. He also went up, but not openly, in secret. It was not his time. It was required for him to be at this feast. Being a Jewish man. But he would not do it like he had always done it growing up with his family. Because his time is not fulfilled. It has not yet come. And so here we see why he was secret. Therefore the Jews were seeking him at the feast and were saying, where is he? There was much murmuring about him among the crowds. Some indeed were saying he's good. However, others were saying no, but he deceives the people. But no one was publicly speaking about him because of the fear of the Jews. This is a lesson for us. The evil of the world deposited into the systems of the world, into the religions of the world. Very powerful influence 
in the world. Very powerful. For all that he had done and said, some of them may have had children at this thing and brothers and sisters and husbands and wives and mamas and daddies. They may have had with them right there in their group enjoying this time. Kindred whom Christ had raised from the grave, from whom he had cast out demons, whom he had restored to health, who otherwise would have died, those very ones, but the, the powerful darkness of the world is something that we cannot fight alone. That is why salvation is divine. It's not by our strength. It cannot be. The world is too strong. And so the Bible teaches us here that the world's religious system of that time in that era in that day, the Judaism of the Jews was so powerful that even though they would have witnessed the miracles of Christ, the power of that darkness could restrain those people unless the Father drew them to the Son. This is the beauty of our salvation. That God Almighty saved us. We didn't save ourselves. The world would not permit our salvation. It is only by the power of God who draws us to Christ that saves us. There's nothing else. There's no other way. And this is the teaching of John, all of, all of it, all the way through. The evil and the power of the world. And the divine salvation that is ours. Through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he came into this world to save sinners. When we leave this auditorium, deacons and wives will be positioned in the rooms right across the hall. And if you're here today without Christ and you would come to Christ today, or if you need to follow the Lord in baptism, or you need to come and join this church, they're ready to talk to you and pray with you about those things. And this is how we do our invitation. As you are dismissed, as the Lord calls, draws, convicts, speaks, compels. You speak to those deacons and their wives as you exit about those things. Let's prayerfully stand all over this room and we'll be dismissed in prayer.